this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track, but there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your value builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. It takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. Next up, you'll hear from Angela Mater, who came up with a product called Fitbook, which was a journal of sorts where you could track your fitness goals and your fitness results. That little product morphed into a whole company called Philosophy, which she ultimately sold to a publicly traded company, publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange. So an amazing sort of exit and story for Angela over a 10-year run. She built the product up to eventually being having distribution in companies like Target and Walgreens and CVS when she was approached by this publicly traded company. I'll let her tell you the, the rest of the story. What's really fascinating and what I want you to listen for is the importance of her brand. What she did was create journals, which in and of themselves probably weren't that differentiated, but it was the brand, the way she did it, the way she packaged it, the way she trademarked it, frankly, that became attractive and became such a valuable asset to this acquirer. You too can create that if you create some differentiation for what you do and really invest in the brand that you're creating. Again, Angela will tell you the rest of the story. Here's Angela Mater. Angela Mater, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to so it's great to be with you. Before we hit record, we were talking about our daily beverages of choice. Mine was a grande <laughs> coffee, but you've had a black coffee. And this is this somehow into your fitness regime? Are you are you a coffee drinker because you are a fitness addict, or is coffee negative for? Your fitness. Oh, no. Coffee actually has a plethora of health benefits. So we don't even have enough time on this podcast to talk about my love of coffee, but uh, it actually has a lot of benefits for your workouts as well. So that is the best news you'll hear all day. Nice. So I could keep drinking. Now, I asked that because, of course, you started philosophy. Um, tell me about this business. This was a fitness business. Tell me about it. Yeah, I mean, fitness inspired. And I say that because we really are a lifestyle products company. You know, um, the the first product I, I created over 10 years ago was, yes, in fact, a, you know, a fitness and nutrition journal. And, you know, John, I had one product for the first two years. So it wasn't, you know, out of the gate, just some, you know, huge brand, but it grew into an entire line of health and wellness lifestyle products. So everything from journals and planning products to fitness accessories. Um, and so, yeah, it, it does have this in um, this essence of, of fitness and lifestyle behind it, but really at the core of everything we do is we inspire people to live healthy, active lifestyles. And we do that in a positive way um, using goal setting um, versus a lot of what's out there in the fitness industry um, is a quick fix. And I am not a fan of that approach. Got it. So uh, your fitness journals would be, you know, I, I did when I'm at 30 crunches today, six kilometer run, I'd run, I'd, I'd, I'd write that. It's sort of like a daily journal, uh, like a gratitude yeah. journal kind of thing. 
Yeah, I mean, actually, we do have a gratitude journal now. Oh, cool. We have a whole entire line of products. Um, but our first product was, yes, a fitness and nutrition tracker. So writing down your workouts, writing down your food, setting goals, not just tracking what you've done, but what you're going to do. And then as the business has evolved into gratitude journals and all these other, you know, products that then are in that same kind of, you know, light of planning and gratitude and health and wellness. That's awesome. I, ju- I just got into CrossFit. What a crazy, crazy sport that is. Have you ever done CrossFit? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh absolutely. I mean, it, it's, you it's know, a whole subculture. It, it is an entire culture in itself. Absolutely. And, and I think that's what we try to do too, is we don't prescribe or recommend any one thing for people. We really try to give people the tools to choose what works best for them. And that's not just fitness. That's also their nutrition. And from the get go, all of our products have been 50, 50, you know, you can't eat healthy and not exercise just like you can't exercise like every single day and eat horribly. So we really try to teach this concept of moderation on a daily basis. And did you start this business with the view that maybe one day you'd sell it? You know, no, I, I, I didn't. I, I didn't. I had an idea for one product um, and part of my uh, MBA program. I kind of worked through this idea and this concept, came up with a business plan and, and created one product. Um, you know, did I create it with this idea of someday I'm going to sell this and, you know, you know, retire on a beach somewhere? No, absolutely not. I was so excited and passionate about the product and the purpose behind the business that I went wholeheartedly into it. And, you know, I think, you know, obviously I told you I've read your book and I, I know the, the theory behind why it's so important to create a business that you can then sell, but I didn't start it with that end in mind. I wish I was that intelligent. <laughs> When did that change? Uh, when did I decide I could maybe sell this? Yeah. Um, when a publicly traded company says, have you ever thought of selling your business? You you perk up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> and so for, so you, was, for you, that yeah. was CSS. Yes, that was CSS. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Before we get to the CSX acquisition, because I want to I want to dig in there as well. Just walk me through the business model. So you had these products. How did you sell them? And, and how did yeah. you make money? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, my theory from the get-go was go big um, because of what I learned very early on was it was just as much work to sell to, a, you know, a little mom and pop down the store as it was to sell to Target. So I went early on to get placement in the mass retailers because as a small brand, you know, it really gave us credibility um, whenever we have our products on the shelves of Target and Walgreens and CVS and all these amazing retailers. And it took just as much work. And I didn't need necessarily a national sales force um, to do so. We needed a small operational team. We needed really strong marketing and branding, but we could run it fairly lean. Um, So my model was to go to mass retail fairly early on. We landed Target in 2011. And from there grew the mass retail business. But the business model has always been, you know, product sales. Um, But the growing, the fastest growing part of our business has also been the direct business as well. Got it. I want to get to that in a second. So so you you focused on the big fish first. My understanding is when you target some of these really big retailers, you know, they have really arduous terms like they they charge you <laughs> slotting fees, they have return yeah. policies that like they can return all the stuff back to you and you got to pay it. Like did you run into any of that stuff? 
Absolutely. I mean, that is the nature of doing business. But what I tell people is if you can't play with the big boys, then don't play. You know, you you have a choice and, and there's value and those retailers know it. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it is a business model. You know, the, the revenue and the exposure that you get early on in playing in retail um, is, you know, dramatically higher than if you just grow it, you know, organically online um, and not having that shelf placement. That that said, the world of retail has changed dramatically, I would say, over the past five years. Absolutely. How did you finance the business? Um, it's called money that we cash flow. <laughs> um, we we were organically grown for 10 years. Um, you know, it it made it difficult at times. Of course, I had to secure a line of credit um, eventually because whenever we landed um, Walgreens, you know, we were we had been in Target since 2011, you know, in 1800 stores, which was great. Um, it was a dramatic shift in the business to go into Walgreens with, you know, 8000 stores and most recently CVS with, you know, upper of, you know, 7,000 doors that were in there. So, you know, it, it really did shift the, the cash needs of the business. So, you know, until then it was completely organically funded by cash flow. However, we had to ultimately get a line of credit for the business, which is very typical in a, in a product business. And did you have to personally guarantee that line of credit? Sure did, John. <laughs> <sighs> That's got to be uh, stressful, uh, wasn't it? Uh, How big a line yeah. of credit, if you don't mind me asking? What, what, like, are we talking millions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars? No, no. It was, it was, you know, it was under half a million, you know, so it wasn't something that I was, you know, I, I felt, here's the thing, whenever it's your business, it's going to be your responsibility, whether it's a line of credit, whether it's inventory sitting in a warehouse, or whether it's a bill that's due to one of your customers. So at the end of the day, it, it you know, that is part of the stress and the, you know, excitement of being an entrepreneur. So it, it didn't really concern me. Um, but whenever you own your own business, I, I think that that's just the nature of like kind of the risk of doing things. And um, so I didn't really view it as anything, you know, more risky than anything else I'd ever done. How are your products different? I mean, like the skeptic in me is saying Target, Walgreens, CVS. I mean, like, come on, guys, I can come up with my own gratitude journal. I've written there's a bunch of them out there or fitness journals, you know, like a lot of these fit, like why you, you guys, and why didn't they just rip off your idea and create it at, you know, a fraction of the margin? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a great question. You should ask all the people that I've sued before um, that did rip us off. <laughs> did, you, did you really have to sue a lot of oh, people? Oh, absolutely. Awesome. Absolutely. So it's called intellectual property and our products. But did um, you have any intellectual property? Really? Yeah, absolutely. We like have what? everything, trademarks and copyrights on all of our products. And the but, but kind of stepping away from the product side, I think the thing that's important to recognize about Fitlosophy is that it is a brand and it's an experience and it's a community. So we have a very cult-like little following of people that have literally been using our products since day one, going on 10 years. Yes, there are other fitness journals out there. Yes, there are other gratitude journals out there. But what we do is create a community and a brand around it. So you're part of something, right? So the reason CrossFit is so popular isn't necessarily just because of the workout of the day, because you could go on the internet and get that, right? But you show up to the gym day in and day out because of the people and the experience that you get.
get when you're there. So I liken it to that. And I think that philosophy in itself, our mantra is live life fit. Our, our message to our consumers is moderation. We have a very different approach to health and wellness than any other fitness company out there in that, you know, I jokingly say like our Instagram is a, a booty free zone. You know, we don't, we don't use, you know, um, this whole like thinner and, and stronger is sexy and like a very, we take a very like clean approach to wellness um, and encourage people to be the healthiest version of themselves because the truth is not everyone out there is trying to get six pack abs. Some moms out there are just trying to fit in her 20 minute workout that day and feel good about the choices she's making. And so I think that message um, resonates with people. And I think that they connect to our team and the people that have created this brand because we are them. How did you create the community? I mean, you're, you have the various journals that people buy either at Walgreens or in, in your direct channels. Yeah. What, what was the follow on way that you created this community? I mean, social media has been a huge power behind that, you know, but to be, to be honest, you know, social media didn't really exist when I started the business, you know, um, you know, we started the business, I started this in 2008. And, you know, since then, social media has obviously, you know, grown dramatically. So we do leverage our consumers a lot, but in, in the social media space, but also, you know, one way that I think we've engaged our consumers is people that have been with us for a long time, they actually do play a part in creating our next product products, our next iterations of products. So for example, if we have a journal that's going into Target, for example, um, and they know that product, we'll do a poll with our customers. Okay, guys, which cover do you like? Which one do you want to see in Target? Oh, cool. We involve them so that whenever that product comes out, not only are people excited to go buy it, but they are posting selfies of themselves in the journal aisle with our journal just because they're so excited to finally see it. And so it's it's involving your consumers and treating them like they're important to the success of your business because they are. It's not acting like they are telling them they are. It is acknowledging that we couldn't have done anything over the past 10 years without them. Awesome. So how did you... I've always wondered this. If, if I buy a, 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 a journal in in a retail store... Um, mm -hmm. obviously people use up their journal, right? They write in them at the end of the year yep. or whatever they, they write. Do you, did you encourage them to re up at on the, in the direct channel or was there some sort Absolutely. of benefit to doing that? Yeah, absolutely. So we do that a couple ways. I mean, the beauty of having a, you know, paper bound journal is I can communicate to you because you're flipping the page every day, right? So we have a reminder, you know, four weeks out that you're going to, you know, be needing another one soon. And at the end of your Fitbook or your gratitude journal, it tells you to go online and here's a coupon code to actually get a discount on your next one. We also heavily, heavily play in the digital marketing space. So, you know, in our website, for example, we use Shopify as our backend and we integrate with our email marketing system. So that whenever you buy a product from us, not only do I know which product you bought and when you're going to need a new one, but I'm also going to know that most people that usually buy this product have success with this. And here are a couple other products that they see success with as well. So it's not just a sales and marketing technique. It really is kind of customizing that customer experience. So, hey, we'll remind you when you need another one. And you might also like this too. And so based on your goals, here's what we recommend. So digital marketing plays a huge part in that because as much as we sell paper products, um, we couldn't do what we do without the digital marketing aspect of things. Got it. So walk us through the, the next step in this process. So you built this company. When you get this call from CSS, the ultimate acquirer of the business, like how, how big a company are you guys like in terms of either you know, revenue or number of employees? Like give us a sense of kind of where you're at. <laughs> 
Yeah, when we, you know, um, got to the point where we're having this conversation, um, you know, we were right at um, six employees and um, about two million in top line revenue. Um, and it wasn't just a they picked up the phone call and called us. We had had a three year relationship as a licensing partner with CR Gibson, which is a division of CSS Industries. So, you know, we had a a working relationship with this company as a licensing partner as well. That's how the conversation started. So CR Gibson, you were a licensing partner. Explain that to me. So you're licensing something from them or they're licensing something from you? So they actually licensed some of our content for a product. Um, and it's actually very interesting. So as much as I went to Target, um, you know, and sold in the in the fitness aisle, I've been in the fitness aisle since 2011. You know, it was really um, an opportunity for us to get in the journal aisle um, at one of our, you know, mass retailers target. And so we, um, we actually approached CR Gibson because they had a very strong presence, um, not only in target, but retailers all over the world. And, um, they asked us to create the content for a product called our Fitspiration journal, which is still in the journal aisle to this day. And so they licensed that product from us and sold in the journal for going on three years before the conversation of acquisition ever, you know, came to the table. So the economics on licensing, um, is essentially they pay you a small fee every time someone buys the journal. Am I getting the basics yeah. of the business model right? Yeah, it's it's a it's essentially a royalty um, on on that item, and uh, you know the the reason I did that was to just uh, diversify a little bit our revenue streams as far as also being able to gain placement in somewhere that I, I couldn't you know, I could not get there myself. And so it was a way to kind of leverage that partnership. Um, I actually never really imagined having a conversation with them about acquisition, uh, but they were a great licensing partner. And so, you know, three years in, this is when, you know, we started talking about, you know, a potential next step. So they raised it and and literally said, Angela, you know, have, have you ever thought about selling the company? Is that how they sort of brought it up? Yeah. And, and the answer was like crickets that followed. Cause I was like, uh, um, <laughs> you know, it was just one of those, I, uh, you know, I, sure. Yeah. I mean, not, not, not knowing what to say because it really wasn't something that was top of mind at that point. Got it. Okay. So, so where did it go from there? Yeah. I mean, you know, it was in May of 2017, so a little over a year ago, that I had the first, you know, phone conversation with the CEO of CSS Industries, and you know, just really an exploratory call. You know, one of their major, um, you know, corporate strategies was, you know, strategic acquisitions, and so I had a great conversation with him, and you know, got to meet some of his key tem- team members, and started having this conversation, and just kind of feeling around. You know, um, fast forward, you know, we closed. Uh, almost exactly a year later. So it it was, you know, definitely um, it it took time, but most of these deals, you know, when done well, do take time. So yeah, it was about a year from the beginning of the conversation to actual close. So you have this sort of warm and fuzzy call with the CEO, like pretty (laughs) superficial, I'm I'm guessing, like you weren't getting into the guts of the numbers at that point. No, I mean, at that point, you're, you know, you don't have an LOI or anything like that. At that point, you're just... Yeah, they're they're fishing around and you're fishing around. And I mean, we we jokingly call it like, you know, we started dating in May and, you know, I mean, it's a first date, right? You're just, hey, you know, what's this look like? What are you interested in? What what 
what are you looking to do? What are you wanting to do with your brand? And, and also where does Fitlosophy fit into that picture? And so really it's just initial conversations to see if it makes sense to talk next steps. Got it. So you have the first date, obviously it was a success. What was the next step in the process? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I went back to my team. He probably went back to his team and, you know, you kind of, I mean, not to keep the dating analogy go too far, but, you know, you go back, you tell your girlfriends all about it and <laughs> and then, you know, you decide what, you know, what's going to come next. And, um, you know, at that point, the next step obviously is the letter of intent um, that, you know, kind of at least in my mind, you know, inked the the intention of, yeah, we are interested. And um, and that's where, you know, I really, you know, started digging into like, okay, what does this look like? And, you know, between you and I, like I said, I, I read your book, Built to Sell. I religiously listened to your podcast and I was also trying to figure out what does this mean for my life, right? Because up until this point, you know, I'd been an entrepreneur in this business for 10 years. I had another business prior to this for a couple of years and, and I'm an entrepreneur. Like, who am I if I sell my business, right? So there's this whole element of like identity around your business. And, um, you know, so I really had to kind of, wrap my head around not just the 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 deal components but around the emotional you know implications of of selling a business love to explore more on that um <laughs> but before we do that the letter of intent you you got what was your reaction when when you finally saw what they had in mind on paper I I was pleased. <laughs> uh, I, w I was, yeah, I think I was um, encouraged that, uh, you know, they were valuing the business in a way that was consistent with the way I had valued the business. And, and with my team talked about, you know, you always kind of have to have this conversation of like, okay, well, you know, if, if this is, you know, where it comes in, you know, we walk. And if, if this is where it comes in, then we, we continue conversations. Obviously, um, when I got it, I think it was a communication of there was a, a consistency behind the conversation I had with his CEO and what um, showed up in my inbox. And so for me, that was um, kind of just confirmation that they're very serious, that they value the brand. Um, and they're going to be, you know, definitely the kind of partner I would want to want to work with at least to explore more. Interesting. Who's the we? You mentioned that you would take <laughs> it back to your team. Are yeah. you talking about your employees or who's the we uh, in that case? No, no. So the we, um, there's a little bit of a story behind it. I call them my guys, um, which is a really not technical term, but essentially my financial advisors. They're um, a team, Pendleton Street Business Advisors. I'd worked with them for, you know, going on three years. And I call them my guys because literally they were involved in, in the financial aspects of running my business. So when you are getting deals with CVS and Walgreens and Target, like you said, there's you know, slotting fees and markdowns and chargebacks and, you know, all these different deal components. But then how does that impact cash flow and bottom line? You know, it was about, you know, when we hit around 1.5 million, I was like, you know what, I need some help running this business because I'm, I'm concerned if I'm the one <laughs> being the only one responsible for it. So I had been working with them about three years prior and they work, you know, primarily as, you know, 
sometimes is like in the M&A space, but their main focus with me was basically making sure, okay, we worked with you this far, um, but they really were helping me determine what's going to be the best deal for me versus just getting the deal done, which is, you know, a lot of times these M&A guys, um, and they're not always guys, sorry, ladies, um, but in many cases, um, the M&A guys are focused on just getting a deal done. And for me, I knew that these guys were so focused on helping me get a deal that was best for me and my business. So what did the, so it's called Pendleton Street, is that right? Yeah, Pendleton Street. Yeah, they're down in uh, South Carolina. I was referred to them by another friend that sold her business. Oh, funny. Um, yeah, so multiple um, ways that I came about working with them, but you know, they're, they've been indisposable in me not only growing the business smartly and strategically, but then walking through the past year, I mean, poor guys. I mean, I think they're part, um, they're part advisors, part therapists half the time. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you guys, and I, when I'm saying guys, I mean you and the Pendleton yeah. Street guys, what did you all think the business was worth before you got the LOI? What, what were you thinking it might have been worth? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think, you know, whenever we were looking at what, what makes sense for this business, you know, you kind of look back and see, okay, well, what, what's happening out there on the street where businesses in our space selling, you know, and we're technically in the consumer product space and, and businesses are usually selling for, you know, I don't know, I think in that time, anywhere from three to five top line, um, you know, so we, we had a, a good idea of where the business would come in, but it, it's almost like asking you like, well, what's what's your house worth? Well, your house is worth whatever someone will pay for it, right? So I think that sometimes it's a good idea to have in mind what what you want, what you need, and what you think a business is worth. But I think it's more important to decide the who. Like, is it the right buyer? Is it the right partner? And in my case, you know, I knew that ultimately we had to decide on more important factors like, what does this mean for my team? What does this mean for me? Um, and some companies could come in and not value those things and have it be a financial transaction. What I saw in early conversations with CSS was that they really were looking at the big picture for the brand. Got it. So you guys figured it was worth somewhere in the three to five times top line revenue. That, I love how you focus in on the numbers. I love that. <laughs> I love like, how you focus I, I on all. Flowery. I oh yeah, flowery. the people, the blah blah, blah the culture. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, the three to five times revenue. Let's come back to that. You're not gonna. You're not gonna get any numbers out of me. Very specific, aren't you? In any event, the top line rep because that's a big for again a lot of a lot of people are more used to hearing about multiples of EBITDA or multiples of pre-tax profit or whatever. But in the consumer product space, the multiples are much higher. Well, no, not not necessarily, and I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, whenever you look at you know what we saw is there. It, as a strategic acquisition, right? A st strategic acquisition, a lot of times you'll look at top line versus EBITDA, right? Versus a financial transaction. And so I really wanted a company that was going to value like the brand and what the brand was worth. Um, and I'm not going to go into specifics of what they paid for the business. You know that. Um, but I do, you know, think that what I, what I saw early on was that they were valuing us in line with what we felt the business was worth. And did you have to... I'd be interested because I mean, I, I guess a lot of other entrepreneurs would benefit from your coaching here. Did you did you sort of precede the buyers up front with, hey, you know, this is kind of roughly what we're thinking. If you're not close to that, oh, no. you didn't do any no. of that. Okay. No, no, no. I mean, and, and that's because, you know, it, 
negotiating 101, don't be the first one to throw out the number, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because, you know, I think a lot of mistakes that we can make is, you know, you go in and you throw out a number and it could be way higher than they were thinking and you completely turn them off. Like, who are you? And if you go in too low, then you just lowballed yourself. And so I think, you know, one thing that my advisors were really helpful on is, you know, let's see where they come in at. And But again, I I think, you know, in, in in a case where it's just like, a straight M&A deal with, you know, it's just a straight transaction. I think I was looking more, you know, at big picture um, and negotiating every part of the deal. The numbers are obviously part of the deal, but it wasn't the only part of the deal for me. What were the other parts? You know, for me, um, negotiating my entire team to be part of the deal. You know, that was a huge part for me because, you know, CSS wants to grow this brand to be a, you know, very, very large brand as part of their, you know, uh, family of companies and brands. And so I knew I couldn't do that on my own. Um, you know, I tend to be the face of the brand and I am the, the entrepreneur behind it, but I am not the only one that's grown this brand. So um, it was really important to me that, you know, my entire team um, be part of the deal. It was really important to me. Um, other things that I wanted to know is like what resources were going to be allocated to the brand long term, because it's great if you have these, you know, goals for the brand. Um, but if there aren't resources, is allocated to it, what does that mean? And then also, you know, deal structure and all those things. Got it. I want to come back to deal structure. Uh, I'm before- sure you do, John. I'm sure you do. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Talk about the team for a second. Um, yeah. When you say the entire team came with you or you wanted to negotiate that, are, are, what does that mean? Are you saying that you want them to have jobs after the fact and they would have employment contracts with CSS? Like, Yeah. So the employment contracts were actually part of the deal. So um, there's, you know, the deal, the actual, you know, um, purchase agreement, but then there's also employment agreements. Got it. And so you wanted to see employment agreements for all of your team? Yeah. uh Uh-huh. I did. And and they were amazing. CSS was amazing about it. They were absolutely, I mean, one thing that they said, which I loved going forward was, you know, you built this business, you know what it takes to run it, you know? And so I really, I think that they saw the entrepreneurial side of what I do and they value that and not all acquirers do. What about you? How important was it that you came with the deal? Uh, very, very, um, you know, I, I, I know that the deal wouldn't have gone through if I was not part of it um, because the CEO told me. (laughs) Uh, Because, you know, I I think in the, especially in the short term, in the near term, the the success of the brand and the scalability of the brand is at least dependent um, on, you know, my being able to really create that vision, communicate the vision to the CSS team and also bring my team along with us and help with that integration. So, yeah, I think, you know, they made it very clear that, you know, they didn't know what it looked like for me. They, they also know I'm an entrepreneur. He, he even said like, I don't know what you want to do. Do you want, you know, do you want to be traveling? Do you want to, what do you want to do? What does this look like? And, you know, I told him, you know, it's really important. I built this company over the past 10 years and, in all, you know, lack of a better word, this, this business is my baby. And so the success of it was very, very important to me. So how did you structure things on, on that piece where you were being asked to stay on? Was, did you have like a, an earn out or, or a, uh, was it like an employment contract that you committed to? Like, how did you, how did they ensure, I guess, that you're going to stick around? 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's an employment agreement in place. Absolutely. You know, there's no no handcuffs. But I think if you have a good, you know, environment and a good structure set up, I don't think you need that. Right. I think, you know, I'll never forget, um, you know, one of the the dinners I had pre acquisition uh, flew to New York, met with, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the CEO and a couple of the top people. And, you know, I turned to one of them and I said, um, you know, He's like, how are you feeling about things? I was like, well, you know, the best way to describe it is I feel like I'm giving my baby up for adoption. That's the best way to describe it. And, you know, of course, this is over a glass of wine. And he turns to me and he says, oh, don't think of it that way. Think of it as you're getting more aunts and uncles to love on your baby. And that was the exact perfect response for someone like me, which has put my heart and soul into this business and growing it. So, um, you know, absolutely, I was going to come along with the business and bring my team with me. Um, and then there's a structure in place to to new, to support that. I.e. <laughs> an earn out. <laughs> there is a component of, you know, the, the deal is structured in a way that, you know, was very um, beneficial for the the short term and the long term. And I had to look at both of that. And that was, you know, we won't go into the specifics of that, but whenever you're looking at a a deal, you know, there's going to be elements of, you know, an upfront cash component. You're going to look at, you know, potential earnout. You're going to look at an, uh, an employment agreement. And I'm kind of sharing this because these are the things I was trying to figure out. So anybody that's listening that, you know, listens to this podcast incessantly trying to figure out how does this stuff work? You know, those are all going to be important things to dive into because, you know, so some deals are more favorable for the entrepreneur and some are more favorable for the acquirer. And so it's knowing the balance between those two. So the big three for you were, okay, what's the cash upfront payment? What's the yep. earnout structure? And, and what's my employment agreement look like? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and those are pretty basic, but whenever you start getting into the nitty gritty of each of those, uh, you know, it becomes almost like a juggling act of, okay, well, if, if we do this then let's do this and, and you have to pick your battles as far as, you know, which, which area is most important to you. Do you remember, do you ever watch the prices, right? Like when I, I, love that show. <laughs> when I was a kid, like I'd occasionally I'd be sick and, and my mom would let me stay home and I'd watch the prices right with Bob Barker. I know it's a new guy on there now. It's been 30 years since Did, I watched yeah, it. Yeah. 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 I like Bob Barker though. I'm a Bob okay. Barker girl myself. All right. So do you remember when Bob Barker would say like, you can have the dishwasher or you have a chance at the new car. <laughs> it's, yep. it's the same thing, right? Like you can have your cash upfront payment of X or you can have three X, but you've got to work for us for three years and do, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I think it is that balancing act, right? And it's also, I think that that communicates how much faith you have in the potential of the brand, right? Um, so some people will look at a deal and be like, you know what, I want cash, I want out and then wipe my hands of it, you know? And some people want to stay on and be a part of it. And so I, I think it's really determining what it means for you and your life and, and what is going to be the best. Like for me, my team was a huge part of it because, you know, I also you know, I'm so grateful to the people that have helped me grow this business that I wanted there to be a win-win for them too. I, I couldn't imagine having, you know, you know, had this scenario where, you know, we sold the business and, you know, on June 1st, I had to let my team go. That, that wouldn't have been happy for me. There, there's no part of me that would have been celebrating. And the, the alternative was, you know, that everyone got a job and it was a great situation and scenario for everybody. I know it's early days in your time at CSS and Sierra Gibson. Um, 
but I guess I'd be curious, I guess it's been since May 2018, we're recording this the end of September, so what is that, three months or something like that? You're obviously an entrepreneur, right? I mean, you had other yeah. companies, <laughs> it's been 10 years for philosophy. Um, I guess I'd be curious to know how that time has been for you and, and yeah. what advice you might have for other entrepreneurs that are that are contemplating potentially doing an earnout. Yeah. Um, well, and this has nothing to do with the deal structure as far as earnout or not. I mean, again, I'm not going to really share the details of, of what I've got in place. But honestly, you know, the one thing that I think some people forget when they run a business is when you've been running a business for 10 years, you know, when you're dealing, especially like I was with mass retailers, you know, there were areas of my business that I knew I just wasn't an expert. And so I saw the opportunity with CSS as a way to leverage their op operational excellence and expertise. You know, they have, they have, you know, a, a team of 70, you know, over in China on the ground, you know, I don't. And, you know, and I looked at the fact that they have a national sales force and you're talking to the lead salesperson for CS or for philosophy. Oh, look, I'm, I'm so ingrained already that I'm, I'm calling it CSS. Um, <laughs> but you know, there were, there were elements of that, but John, can I be honest? I don't miss um, looking at my cash flow. I don't miss um, looking to see, okay, well, we've got this order coming in for CBS. And so, you know, I'm going to have to fund this and then target won't pay for three months. And, you know, I don't miss that part of it, but the other, thing is, I think you forget that whenever somebody comes in and buys your business, how good it feels. Like it's the ultimate um, affirmation that you did something well, right? Like I, I created something from one idea, one product that even you yourself is like, why wouldn't someone just go knock it off? I mean, it's it, to have someone take that and grow it over 10 years and then have a large company that is traded on the New York Stock Exchange say they value your business. There was a lot of like just a sigh of relief, like, oh, I did it. I did it. And I would say for the first, you know, for the last 10 years, maybe I've never allowed myself to feel that sense of accomplishment. So I think in some ways, June 1st, 2018 was probably one of the best days um, in my business life for sure. It's hugely validating, right? Like, it, yeah, it's funny. Oh my gosh. Because yeah. <laughs> as entrepreneurs, we don't get that. Uh, to use a gender specific term, attaboys very often, right? Because you don't have no. a boss. You don't have someone saying, hey, great job. Like, that was an awesome sale. Like, there's nothing. It's you're it. <laughs> so, have somebody yes. after 10 years validate what you've done. That's a huge deal. Yeah. And I, you know, I come from a long line of entrepreneurs and I rarely talk about business without mentioning that because I think it's so important. You know, I watched my, my father, we, we owned a bakery for 14 years and I, that was my first job at the age of seven. And I was raised in my grandfather's um, used car dealership that he still at the age of 83 is working in. Wow. And I think I also saw, you know, I talked to my papa and, and I was telling him, you know, about this and stuff. And he's like, honey, don't do what I did. I could never walk away. And when I got the chance, I didn't. And so I learned like, and I'll, I'll like get teary if I actually talk about it too much. But I think, you know, I tried to tell him, I was like, yeah, but Papa, like, had I not watched you do this over the, he's ran a business for 50 years, John, 50. But what I told him was, you know, if I hadn't watched some of the decisions you made, I don't think I would have been able to make the correct one. And so there's value in that, right? So having been part of family business, I was able to see an opportunity when it presented itself and know that, you know what, this is the next best step for this business. How did you choose to tell your grandfather that you sold? They knew um, 
you know, I would say fairly early on in the process. Um, my grandparents and I are very, very close. And, uh, you know, I, I have coffee with my my grandfather and, you know, I just told him kind of the opportunity and I honestly just asked him to, to pray over it because it was something that I didn't know if it was the right thing, to be honest with you. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know if I was going down the right path. There was a lot of confusion along the way of like, who am I if I sell my business? What does that mean? And what do I, like, when somebody asks, like, what do you do for a living? I'm like, I'm an entrepreneur, but then I sold my business. You know, there's so much confusion around your identity. And so I think, you know, sitting down for coffee with him and just having him validate, like, good girl, good girl. I think that there was a lot of value in that. As you look about the next uh, period of time as, as an employee, how have you changed the way you uh, think about your own role um, in the in the context of now being an employee. Do you, do you do you approach your job in in any different way? Does it feel different? I'm trying to get a sense of that. Um, you know, there are certain things that have been an adjustment. You know, um, you have to learn to let go of certain elements, which for a uh, you know self-admitted control freak is, you know, interesting at times. <laughs> but I do really think that there are parts of, you know, what I do now that haven't changed a bit. You know, to be honest with you, I still, you know, my technically my title now is vice president of philosophy brands. I still have the same team in place. The the good part is we actually get to leverage resources, you know, in a organization of, I think it's 2,500 employees um, in with locations all over the world. And so getting to integrate my team into that. So, you know, the things that have changed are, are very, um, they're offset, I guess I would say by the benefit. Uh, the, the parts that have been, you know, difficult for, for me is just, uh, you know, not having as much control over your own time because you're working with so many more people now. Um, but the the day to day of what I do, like right now, we're working on a big program for a very large retailer. What I do, John, is I get to create products for mass retailers that will go into stores all over the country. And that's the exciting part for me. So in some ways, um, the core of what I do hasn't really changed a lot. Well, it sounds like you do it well. What's the best way for people to reach out? I mean, do you want to send them to a website so where they can learn more about philosophy products or? Yeah, what's sure. The best way? Yeah, our website is getfitbook.com. So my first product was Fitbook. Uh, so getfitbook.com. I mean, obviously, you can find us on all social media outlets under Fitbook, F-I-T-B-O-O-K. Um, that is, you know, not not the most brilliant branding, really. The company name is Philosophy. But, you know, it shows you how small I, I was thinking when I started it, just one product. Um, but I think uh, I can't be too hard on myself. It, it, it kind of turned out for the best. It kind of worked out. So <laughs> it kind of worked out. Getfitbook.com. Angela Mater, thanks for joining us. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow. 
W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.